Hello, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. This week, the Ringer is launching a new podcast feed called Boom Bust, a new hub for narrative podcasts documenting the rise and fall of companies, celebrities, and trends. Season one, hosted by our own Alyssa Bereznak, takes you through this spectacular journey of HQ trivia, the once $100 million industry-altering company turned disaster. Alyssa interviewed dozens of former employees, investors, journalists, and fans, bringing you the behind-the-scenes story of how HQ crumbled from within. Subscribe to Boom Bust HQ Trivia and check out the first two episodes out now on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. cousins. It's just what we do. You just live this shit until you can't breathe no more. I swear to God, I was courtside for eight months. I was free in jail. Technically, this episode, episode 13 of season one of The Wire, which we're in now, we're at the end of season one. And technically, this episode is called Sentencing, but it could very easily be called Chickens Coming Home to Roost. Or Mm. in some cases, the chickens still remaining in the same old hen they've always been in. Uh, Because it's amazing how um, this episode, maybe more than some of the others that we've discussed, you feel both conclusion, but also the futility of it all. And what I tried to imagine as I was watching this particular episode is what if the wire had ended right here? What feeling would I be left with? And that was kind of the takeaway that I was stuck with is just how would I feel about this series and its brilliance and, and what we saw in season one and say, hmm, if, if, if this was how it was supposed to conclude, what would I think about this? And I think I would walk away probably feeling uh, a little hopeless um, about how things are. I don't need happy. And I'm not one of these people who needs happy endings, but you spend so much time and painstaking detail with some of these characters that if this season had ended right here, I think I would have been feeling a little bit empty. Uh, what were some of your takeaways from sentencing episode 13? Well, two things. I think one of the major themes that dominates this episode is what people are willing to do for freedom whatever freedom that comes, whatever form that freedom comes in, whether that form comes in actual freedom, uh, like Avon Barksdale, um, some of the other people, whether that form call comes in the freedom of your conscious, which is uh, Kima um, and the decision that she makes early on in the episode, or whether that freedom comes from the freedom of the burden that you're carrying, freeing yourself of a burden. I think that freedom uh, is, is, um, is evident in D'Angelo. I think this episode is indicative of everybody uh, trying to figure out um, the ways that they are going to free themselves. It's about sentencing. What kind of sentence can you handle both in the very real uh, sort of ramifications of the, the major crimes investigation into the Barstow organization, but also on a character by character personal level as well. Also, I had that written down, what you said earlier is it's an, it's, Especially in the conclusion of the episode, you see that everything changes and stays the same at the same time, which um, for a show that really lives uh, 
uh, I, I was listening to to Simon talk about this. Um, the Wire, more than any other show, deals with a lot of minutia. It deals with a lot of just people talking about things and um, sort of anti-drama almost. Um, and this uh, finale doesn't leave you with any sort of high drama. It doesn't leave you with any sort of uh, huge cliffhanger or anything to tune in next time, uh, next season, where we have you have to talk about it all summer long. It leaves you with a sense of how mundane everything you just watched was. As much of a conclusion as it is to some different arcs and stories, it goes out of its way at the end for the viewer to understand that everything you saw was business as usual. And maybe... That's the the message, not maybe, that is the message that David Simon wanted to convey is that there is, while there is a rays or little small rays and glimpses of hope, that generally speaking, that this problem is so, these problems, not just one problem, these problems that happen in the inner city and with fighting this imaginary drug war and uh, between the politics of it all, that while there are glimpses of hope, it's just so bogged down with bullshit just bogged down to the point where you never see any real progress because the system continues to work as it was designed to do, which is not to get anything accomplished and to constantly punish um, some of the same people over and over to over punish certain people. And so um, I think that message kind of rang loud and clear in this episode. And so I, I would imagine that uh, had the wire actually had to end here, I don't know if uh, I'm uh, with one season, of course, people would not have felt that it was as brilliant as uh, or the best drama of all time, which many people, myself included, you included, regularly call it. But uh, I do hope people understand that there is a certain brilliance in the hopelessness of it so that we're never left with this sense that, oh, we figured everything out. You know, we don't um, they don't want people to have that feeling like. Some people had prior to the 2016 election where they feel like we elected a black man. Everything's good now. Post-racial. Woo. Yeah. Not really. So right. I, I think Simon right. purposely left with these feelings of despair. <laughs> well, I mean, it's both despair and just a stark realization of how things actually are. So when you have as many people creating the series that are actually involved on the ground, it gets more disingenuous for those people to make up outcomes, uh, for them to make up happy endings. You know what I mean? If you sit down and you want to tell a killer fairy tale, you know, the princess bride, princess and a frog, those are all good, uh, good, um, good examples. But if you want to have a real conversation and a real societal dissection, um, of, of, about what's going on in places, um, that are depressed around the country, uh, then the wire is that conversation starter because it deifies no one and it, it and it demonizes no one and that's what you get in this finale. Let's quickly go over and recap what happens here in the season finale of season one, uh, the sentencing as it is called. So, uh, big thing, Kima wakes up, and uh, for those who I guess hadn't seen it before that were hanging in the balance, though I feel like we may have given enough hints that might have told people that she was actually going right. to live. Yeah, we gotta Kima mess that one up. Does not die. Yeah, Kima okay. does not die. Uh, but as we mentioned when she first got shot, uh, one of the you know neat little trivia things is that she was actually supposed to die, but mm. uh, there was a lot of people who were 
championing her character, including the president of HBO. And so when the president of HBO says somebody lives, they're going to live. And so, they live. Uh, yes. And Kima also advocated, um, or uh, Sonya Sohn also advocated for herself to continue to be a part of the show. And she was really pissed at David Simon when she found out when they were shooting the pilot that she was supposed to die because she had no idea that that was the case because she was relatively new to the entertainment business and didn't understand a five-year contract doesn't mean that you're actually going to be in this for five years. <laughs> so, mm. um, uh, but luckily they kept her on and kept her um, as, a, as a staple. Uh, Avon finally gets them cuffs. He does bail out uh, 250 grand. You know, he does get bailed out. Him and Stringer, uh, it, it, the Barksdale uh, family is in a very weird position because uh, him and Stringer are trying to figure out how to regroup because the police have hit all their spots. They've taken away a lot of dope. They realize they've been compromised. Yeah. Orlando's is no longer a thing. And so now they have to sh- uh, set up shop elsewhere and try to figure out how to rebuild their organization. Uh, one of the things in terms of people also kind of getting their comeuppets, if you want to look at it that way, is D'Angelo, who gets the cuffs as well. Um, He is in jail facing a significant sentence, uh, but also uh, breaking free from his family even more so than he had before. Uh, He basically starts talking to the police, spilling all the tea, and then Mama Brianna comes in and like, "Uh, so you might want to think about this. So... And she reminds him, it's a whole lot of shit at stake. And this ain't about you anymore. This is about you taking this L for the rest of the family. Um, and on the cop side, uh, we see um, continuing uh, Cedric Daniels. He's continuing, Lieutenant Daniels, continuing to press this case, uh, trying to prov- get new things from the tap, trying to advance this case forward because now you know, he has been re-energized. I mean, he's kind of seen the light of day and he's excited about all of this he was able to do just based off this detailed police work. Um, and it was interesting. It's a scene, I mean, maybe we'll talk about a little bit later when we go over kind of some of the standout scenes from this particular episode. But interesting that he says all this to his wife about, you know, um, trying to... Uh, He's he's riding a high from everything they've accomplished. And she kind of shuts him down um, on the political end, because in the process of doing this, he has pissed on his relationship with Burel. Um, He's pissed off a lot of people that are above him because, you know, he basically gave Burel in the last episode all the smoke that he wanted when he was trying to threaten him to uh, say, hey, I still got this file from your old days at the Western and Daniels was like, don't start none, won't be none. And right. <laughs> that's pretty much, you know, uh, where that was. But we end, as we both have alluded to, uh, on a lot of different storylines. It's kind of this idea of a of a real two steps forward, um, three steps back. It's kind of the way it works. I mean, we see Bubbles returning to the life of addiction. Um, we see even Omar at the very end returning to what he does best, which is sticking people up. Jimmy McNulty's future has been decided and he went exactly where they asked him where he didn't want to go. And that's exactly where he wound up going. So everything in this episode comes full circle. And so you have some fresh beginnings, but it's also the same old shit. Even, you know, Poot is suddenly in the pit running things. Lil Poot has grown up Mm -hmm. in these 13 episodes. So there's, there's a lot of conclusions, but a lot of shit still is going to bang and stay the same. But one of the things that changed is 
and this is the character that we're going to take a, a deep dive into now, is that Sergeant Ellis Carver <laughs> becomes a leader. One, he's identified as the snitch. He was a dude that was snitching. And what he got out of snitching was this promotion. Last week, we run the buck up in the Boxdale's club office. And Burrell, for once, he's a step behind. You see it? Maybe he... I see it. I look around the office, and I see that one of my people is at the academy for in service. Lieutenant, I swear it wasn't my idea. But nevertheless, we've seen a lot of different sides of Carver. And while they try to position him mostly as Hurt's sort of meathead compadre, uh, there's a lot more to Carver, I think, than being, you know, just your your average cop, or at least they're trying to make him sort of like an every cop of like only caring about bust and, you know, um, and the little stuff, not really having the mentality to do the deeper police work that Lester does, that McNulty does, that he's not that guy. He's more of a, he's a, he's a numbers guy. You know, yeah. he's going to, I mean, he, he would maybe, I don't know if he would be a six man necessarily, but you know, to some degree, all he does is one thing. It's like he gets points. That's all he does. He don't play no defense. Right. He'll do shit else. Just get you points. And so, you know, looking at Carver, uh, man, what to you kind of stands out about him and makes his character um, or where his character fits in this puzzle that is The Wire? couple of things. Number one, having seen the entire series, it's interesting how Carver is, is, is sort of positioned in this towards the end of this first season. Number one, remember at Kima's death scene, he kind of took charge and started telling people where to go. He actually uh, is the one that went and notified uh, Kima's girlfriend um, about the fact that she had been uh, shot. So you see an evolution from the character earlier on to where he was kind of, like you said, just a cohort, uh, a cohort to hurt um, in doing all of these things to someone who is willing to take on a significant degree of responsibility. Even in that conversation with uh, Lieutenant Daniels, where Daniels is talking to him, Carver says a couple of things in that conversation that are telling. He goes, the deputy ops called me up. I mean, I'm minding my business, doing my fucking job when the man calls me upstairs for coffee at a Danish, right? I mean, I've never even been on the eighth floor of that fucking building. And there's the deputy fucking ops telling me how concerned he is about the case. He needs to be informed. I mean, he's the deputy fucking ops, man. There is something to him that is impressive about making rank. He wants to be a career officer. That's the first time that you realize that Ascension of the totem pole is important to him. It's something that means something to him. Uh, the rank, what whereas Jimmy and other various people in the show couldn't care less, even Lester couldn't care less about somebody's rank. It's only about their operation. It matters to it matters to Carver, um, and that's how Carver can be leaned on in order to pr provide information for Burrell because he cares about making rank. He is impressed with the things that go on on the upper floor. Um, and to that end, you're going to see through his character a little bit about what it takes to make it to that eighth floor. He's got suction with Burrell now, right? Because he did somebody's dirty work. The, the conversation between him and Daniels is an important scene because Daniels is telling him, uh, I've been where you've been. I know where you're going. And this is a very important moment for you to establish what type of police officer 
What type of leader? Um, what type of asset to the force do you want to be in the future? And with uh, there's no other character in the wire that we got a chance to see that ascension in. There's not one. Like a, a lot of times when we meet these guys and they've made rank, um, they're fully formed. We didn't get to see the things that they went through in order to get to the point to where a bunch of guys have to look at them and take their cues from them. Carve is our look into the systemic process-based uh, sort of rise up um, into for for a police for a police officer, um, and also significantly between him and and Hurt, you know, in this episode, Hurt actually at the beginning tells Carver he says, uh, you know, because uh, he had done better in the sergeant's exam, he said, listen, when we're out here, you know, call me sir. And Carver looks at him like he's crazy, right? Because like, call me, sir, you're my guy. We like frat brothers. Why am I going to call you sir for all of these people? It's like, you're trying to sum me a little bit. And then later on, when it's actually Carve, who, because of his behind closed doors activities with Burrell, um, gets past him, uh, gets past Herc. When Herc looks at Carve and says, congratulations, there is not one hint in Carver of rubbing it in. There's not one piece of him that takes it out. You see on his face. And, and he could have totally taken the low road right there. Could have taken a low road. He took the complete high road. That tells the, not just, uh, 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 it, it does not just, that's, that's not just for Hurt. That tells the audience that there is a caring and a leadership quality in Ellis Carver. It's there and we're going to see it continue to develop. Yeah, and um, it was interesting because when, and I think um, a lot of that that conversation between Daniels and Carver, when he tells him, I know you're the one that was snitching to Burrell, there's a lot of foreshadowing in that to me. Um, that was a symbolic scene because Daniels says to Carver, Comes a day you're going to have to decide whether it's about you or about the work. And he's challenging him because, as you said, that used to be Daniels. And so this whole setup of him figuring out who the snitch was, having that one-to-one -one with Carver was setting the table, I think, for us to look at him and see some of the parallels of what Daniels probably went through early on in his career. Um, you know, Daniels never, I mean, he was kind of defiant about his past as it was. Uh, but with Carver, we saw how just kind of how it was like Carver. I mean, I think you said this the last podcast. Um, Daniels had some dirt on him, but he wasn't necessarily a dirty cop. Like right. Carver has some dirt on him, but he's not necessarily a dirty cop. Uh, you know, he takes a little here and there, mm -hmm. shaves some off the top, a little tip. But he's not, you know, working in conjunction with criminals. He has a disdain for criminals and he on some level it's still about justice. And it was funny until we decided to do this deep dive on Carver, we had talked about um, when we were setting up, you know, all the different themes of, of the wire and evolution was, was one, something we talked about. And when we were talking about different characters and how they evolved, Carver's name never came up. But when you think about it, especially as we project forward, he went through a significant uh, evolution in this series, especially as you kind of just pointed out, as it relates to his, you know, relationship uh, with Hurt. I guess I remember 
the first time I saw this episode, um, being really shocked that it was Carver was the one who was the snitch because he never struck me, not because he wasn't capable because, you know, he, he likes to definitely cross the line, but mostly because I didn't think Carver was ambitious. And that was the thing. He didn't care enough. Right. Like why would he be the, he would be the most imperfect person for somebody in Burrell's uh, position to pick as a snitch. Cause he don't care enough to rise up. Like he, they've spent a good amount of time in this series setting Carver up as somebody who was going to do the least, okay? Going yeah. to do the least. And the things that he was going to put his effort and energy into was the shit like whooping people's ass. Like, he put so, him and Hurt put so much energy into whooping Bodie's ass. It just, like, they all just accepted. Like, all right, well, y'all see me. Sometimes y'all might talk to me. Sometimes y'all might whoop my ass. Like, that's the shit that he cared about is busting heads and making minimal, you know, busts that didn't really have, anything to do with trying to topple a system. So that was the thing that's that's shocked me, frankly, the most is that he even cared about make a sergeant or even cared about, you know, the fact that he wanted to cared enough about his career as a police officer to even want to one day be Cedric Daniels, because that's ultimately what he's aiming for here. Yeah, I think The Wire is a show that never makes the viewer feel like you can rise above the system that you're in. The system always wins in the wire, but it is a show about choices that you make um, that impact your life and the immediate lives, lives around you within those systems. Okay. So the greatest system, I, I watched something uh, where, you know, the greatest God in the wire is capitalism, right? So capitalism is the big thing. It's forcing all of these things upon each other and, 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 and pressuring Everyone to do everything. Um, and then you have, of course, uh, the the death of urban America, which is another um, sort of central theme and maybe the biggest lesson of The Wire. But even inside of those things, you have individuals faced with the types of people they want to be and what it takes in order to make those decisions, what you have to give up, what you have to gain. We see that in this episode with a couple of different characters. Um, but the, the the conversation between Daniels and Carver is about Daniels assessing uh, what Carver did and telling him it only gets worse from here. Like the better you do in this police department, it only gets worse. You only have a chance to do actually more damage. Okay. So you can go out there and be a run-of-the-mill sort of uh, a middle management or upper management guy and then do exponential amounts of damage to everyone that follows you, or you can do something different. But something different is harder, but it's up to you to decide. Everyone in this show has to make that decision at some point in their character arc. They have to decide. Something else about Carve, you know, they don't ever give us a, 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 um, a sort of deep detailed background into who he is but we do know he is from eastern baltimore when they're yeah, at and the, he did uh, grow up in the projects around he grew there. up in the, he grew up in the projects mm-hmm. when he's trying to to kind of to kind of flip Bodie, um <laughs> he tells him you know he he grew up he came up hard he grew up on over on the east side uh and so that is also a part of this like that part of carve who cares about the individuals um that he's policing hasn't quite been activated. Uh, We know that it is activated. We know that it's activated in a major way. 
Um, and I think, but it, it does. Ep- if you think about it, though, Van, it does activate a little bit. Like you see small glimpses because I'm thinking about the the scene he had with Bodie a few episodes ago when they were playing pool at the um, before they took him to juvenile, and you kind of see that there is a part of Carver that's starting to relate, build a rapport, but not in a rapport of like he wants something out of it, but just, and maybe caring is too far of a stretch, but there's something that's happening there where there's a part of him that even though he keeps cracking Bodhi's head, he feels some level of responsibility toward him. Well, no, there there ends up becoming a, a sort of weird kinship between Bodhi and Carver. That was uh, what I was and, looking for. And, 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 you know, Carver ends up developing um, a weird relationship. Now, th- this is not to say that Ellis Carver never becomes somebody like that, that he just becomes a, a straight arrow for the rest of the series. He doesn't. He doesn't at all. But he does become someone who looks at policing different in subsequent series, subsequent seasons than he did in this first season. He becomes a character that 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 looks at something and changes his perception um, and sort of his attack uh, in the way that he looks at sort of some of these things that are going on. And you will see the way that he goes back and forth with people on the corners, it changes. And so um, I think this episode, uh, the the talk with uh, with Daniels and some of the other things that we've seen from him in, in, in the past couple of them, I think that's kind of the beginning of that. Now I don't know if you picked if you got this sense, but I got this sense in that in that um, talk he had with Daniels. I think he actually regretted what he did. I think he that did he, too. Yeah, I think he regretted snitching out to Burrell, even though long term, especially as you watch how the the rest of the seasons play out, and with him in particular, it benefited him. It definitely helped for sure. But I think in that moment, um, the look on his face as Daniels, who um, despite the flaws that he does have. The one thing is he's down for his unit and the way that he protected Carver from honestly, some what you really should have been some significant consequences. Now, granted, we know the way policing works in America and it was very, I mean, it wasn't unrealistic in the wires. Like they Carver literally faced no uh, repercussions, no repercussions whatsoever for that shit that went down uh, in the projects when him and hurricane Prez went up in there, for no reason, and um, you know, a, a, a child, a teenager, winds up blind in one eye because of their foolishness, and mm-hmm. and even when it came to the mis- disappearing money, you know, that's why in a in a way it was kind of it, it's good that it was a um, an aha moment, if you will, for Carver, but it also was immensely disappointing because he should have been fired like six different times in season yeah. one. For shit that he did. And the only reason he wasn't is because Daniels is willing to take that L. And so that's why that level of ambition and frankly cunning was unexpected from Carver for him to even develop um, that kind of side plan, that side, you know, hustle with Burrell. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, Daniels is a big reason why he even has a job. Yeah. And so for, for him to betray him, it's like, whoa, really? Like, this is a dude that looked out for you. Yeah, I mean, true. I mean, look, it, it, once again, we've talked about this before. If you were to step back and put it in a vacuum, Carve is a bad cop. <laughs> you know what I mean? He beats up people. He steals money. You know, But we're not in a vacuum. We're in the real world. 
The Wire doesn't look at at people from a great man, bad man perspective. Uh, it looks at people as what they are, people. I think that one of the best lessons that you can learn from the show is that there are so many dimensions to most people to where it's very difficult to classify them as good or bad without context. Now, of course, we know there are exceptions to that. Okay. <laughs> we know. <laughs> oh, there, there are exceptions to that. Um, but at the same time, within a system, a, a lot of times, either whether or not you're in the drug game, the cops, the feds, it's not even about bad or good. It's about functional or dysfunctional. Are you functional or dysfunctional inside the system that you operate in? And what we essentially watched throughout the first season is Carve go from dysfunctional to highly functional because he starts to understand what he has to do to make his way forward. He has to understand what he has to do to be a better police officer to the people around him. And he starts to take up those responsibilities. Um, and seeing that growth is important uh, to, 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 to kind of getting to uh, where we're going to get with a lot of different other characters because we're going to see their growth. Uh, and it's not like he's, it's like a, it's a straight up trajectory. It's like kind of like the the charts that we watch daily for the virus. They go up, then they go down. We think we won and then we lost. And so that's kind of how <laughs> yeah. character arcs in the wire go. They're up, they're down, they're up, they're down. But right now we're starting to see who Carbon wants to be. Yeah, um, that's an interesting comparison. So the the wire is like coronavirus. <laughs> it's a yeah. or the response to it is like ah, sometimes we think we're winning, other times we're like, no, we're not really winning. We're we're actually yeah. getting worse at this. <laughs> so right. um, it's hard to feel any true sense of of optimism as we now kind of pivot to talk about best scenes. You know, it, because this is more of a conclusion centered episodes. It, it just seemed to me that this had a lot of great scenes more so I, it's tough to say more so than usual because every, you know, whenever you start talking about best scenes in each episode of the wire, you feel like each episode is better than the last. So you're, so to even compare them, you're just kind of falling down a fake rabbit hole. But really in this one, it was like, after every scene, I was like message message, like yeah. <laughs> after every single scene. And there were so many. Uh, so why don't you start us off with what were, what were some of your favorite scenes uh, from this finale? Kima's stance when Kima refuses to. Yeah, that's a big one. Uh, that's a big one on two levels. That's also, we're going to get to that a little bit later. When Kima refuses to identify Weebay, she didn't see Weebay, she saw a little man. And so she right there takes the road, not less traveled. That seems like the road untraveled. It seems like they, she made a new road. Lester, uh, excuse me, not Lester Bunk, tries to give her the fat finger. She won't go for it. That's a big scene. Um, McNulty what is it? Kim, what are her her line, which I love, which is sometimes things just gotta play hard. Sometimes things just gotta play hard. McNulty with Kima is another big one. That's a rare moment of uh, of of sort of weakness and humanity from Jimmy. The only other time we had seen that is when Kima was in a hospital. That's a good one. You know, the biggest thing about that scene to me, and this is what The Wire does so incredibly well, is they take a small moment and then they make you see a larger picture, sometimes related to race or gender or whatever. And the fact that McNulty in that scene. So I think everybody assumed that most of his guilt up until this point was just based off the fact that Kim is his girl, as he even said it like. You know, he got her all wound up, got her caring about this case. And he's like, this case don't even mean shit. And I got her killed uh, or not killed, but I got her shot and, and put her life on the line. But the other part that I thought was really telling and again, brilliant writing 
is when he says, For a case like this, it's always you or Sidner or some other black cop who ends up going undercover. Because it's a necessity of the job, right? Because if a white cop right. goes undercover, they know he undercover. They're like, you a cop, ain't you? So that shit would never work. So it's like he can sit there and be this Einstein detective in part because people like her actually go in the field and execute the shit that they all discover. And so when he says that um, and admits that that's a part of his guilt, I was like, damn, that's some shit right there to admit that like I that he knows he has a certain amount of privilege as a white cop that he doesn't have to do that. And that's one of the only times that privilege in that way is directly addressed in the wire now it's indirectly direct uh, addressed even later on in this episode when um all of the uh big wigs you got uh, uh daniels and and lester and mcnulty when they try to make the case and take it federal uh when they're talking to the federal people and the federal people don't really care about what's going on in west baltimore you the, the fbi and the u.s attorneys and they don't care about what's going on in west baltimore they only care about political corruption when they're when the cops frustration, it's indirectly signaling that they're frustrated that these white people don't care that black people are being killed by the by the dozens in West Baltimore. It's indirectly if they don't say you guys just don't care about what's going on with the black people in Baltimore, but they, they let you know that poor black people are dying at a ridiculous clip because of the drug war. And we're here to stop that. And we don't want you to use that as a pawn to get to something that you think is more important. We want you to be on the that. That's indirect. But McNulty talking to Kima is, is very direct. And it's one of the only times that race is directly identified in the wire. Because it really doesn't need to be. You see what's happening. You see the people that it's happening to. Um, so it doesn't need, you don't need to be beat over the head with it. But I just thought that I caught that as well. I see that every time. And I, I think that was um, also very telling about his character and how he sees things. He does see everything, even if he pretends he doesn't. But my two best scenes, and I got it as a tie. One is D'Angelo giving it up to Bunk and McNulty. When you watch that scene, he is now fired Levy. He's got a public defender. And he's sitting down there and he's talking to them, giving them everything that he knows because now D'Angelo wants his freedom, right? And his freedom is both an emotional freedom and a physical freedom. He wants to be away from these things emotionally. He wants to be away from these things physically. He wants to be put uh, in Witsack and get out of there, go to Boise, Idaho and open up a a pet store or something. Um, What you see is the look on the public defender's face. She is newly initiated to the carnage that exists in West Baltimore. She is not Levy. She's not Sidner or Carver or D'Angelo or Stringer or uh, Bunk or, or Lester or McNulty. She is a civilian. And when you see what her face does upon seeing all the pictures, because they have pictures all lot out of all of these victims. They got Wallace. Uh, they got, uh, the what was the girl that, uh, name? Deidre uh, McKesson. Yep. They got, they got Deidre. Uh, oh, Deidre McKesson. I wonder if she was related to DeRay. They got, uh, they, they got, <laughs> they got, uh, I hope I didn't got, just make that up either. I was like, I thought it was like McKesson, but 
I will double check by the time you finish. Okay. Right. You might just be thinking Baltimore. I know. D-Ray. Yep. I told I'm right. Yep. So. It's DJ Crescent. DJ Crescent. DJ Crescent. She ain't no related to our boy. DJ Crescent. Sorry. Sorry. D-Ray. It wasn't. It wasn't your relative. My bag. So when she sees it, I always watch her during that scene because when she sees what's going on, she reacts like somebody who just tuned into The Wire for the last episode would react. Now, see, for us, over the course of the season, all of these things have been normalized to us. The police brutality has been normalized to us. The, uh, the violence has been normalized to us. The drug addiction, the drug use, all of these things have been normalized to us as a viewer. But the reality is these things ain't normal. They're not. And I watch her doing that scene. As much as that scene is about D'Angelo trying to get these things off his chest and just the amount of transparency he's willing to have, the fact that he's willing to uh, to do all of this different stuff, um, the same stuff that Wallace was, was, was willing to do, that's a big deal. But also the fact that there's somebody else in that room who even though she lives in that city and works in the legal establishment, has no idea how bad things are. And I love that scene for that reason. The other scene that I have, this is real quick, is just Brianna and D'Angelo, the original sin of his mother that's going to follow her throughout the rest of this series, the original sin of his mother talking him back into jail when he had talked himself into freedom. I think in that moment, um, he has a lot of moments like this, but in particular in that one, is when you really, I think you really see him in, as a victim in that moment. I mean, I, I don't want to make it, nobody forced him into the drug trade. This is true. And personal responsibility and all that. And I get it, yada, yada, yada. But you understand that he never had a chance but to kind of grow up this way. When he talks about how his grandfather, uh, who he was in that town, and about how all his uh, uncles, his cousins, his own father, drug trafficking is what they do. That's the family business. And you see his mama and she out cold with it. And, you know, I, I love that line when he said, I swear to God, I was courtside for eight months and I was free in jail than I was at home. Then you, you understand why, while, yes, cooperating with the police and snitching is frowned upon, that there is something much larger at play for him, he's fighting for his humanity. This isn't even yeah. when he's talking about his freedom. That's just a symbol. Freedom is he wants to be mentally free from all the things that he has done, all the things he's witnessed and all the things that he's involved in. And so, like he said, you know, why can't he start over? Why can't he get another chance? Yeah. And um, seeing that scene and the pressures that are on him. It kind of when you spin it forward and especially if you've seen The Wire, you kind of know how this story totally comes to a conclusion. It makes that even worse, knowing that what his true desire was, um, was to get free from from all of that. So um, I thought that seemed uh, that might have been my favorite on a smaller scale. Your boy Weebay, because Weebay, this is another big thing that happens up. They finally catch Weebay in Philly with his peoples. (laughs) okay? Yeah. (laughs) And (laughs) Weebay. I mean, the fact that he called it tater salad, I mean, not potato salad, mm-hmm. tater salad, because there potato is a salad. difference, right? It's like tater salad is that fire. Potato oh. salad could just be okay, but tater salad, that's tater that salad. shit. Okay, 
See, tater, tater salad. I, we, I, we don't say the tater salad down like in Louisiana. Like, so we say potato salad. Who got the, who got the best <laughs> potato salad? Well, yeah, my mom would be like, I'm going to make some potato salad tonight. Okay. It's like, we don't, say, we don't say the tater salad too much, though. But we know the tater salad, though. You we do. Know the, you we do. know that tater salad. You know and that I, tater salad. I, I, it's so hard watching people eat on TV. Why every time somebody <laughs> eats on TV? Actors are really good at eating. When Weebae's in there... And he's like, you know, he's eating the pit beef and he and wants to like, potato salad. And he's like, yo, bring me another one of them sandwiches and I got even more. I got even more murders. Murders. I got yes. more murders for another sandwich. You know what? Of all the gangster scenes in The Wire, that might be the most gangster. And I, there's there's another scene that we're going to talk about later on. This is just cold to me. But when we talk about um, the gangster scenes of The Wire, him just eating that life sentence like he's eating like nothing. that tater salad like nothing. <laughs> Him eating that life sentence like he's eating that tater salad. He's disappointed because they only got the slaw. Fam, you about to go to jail for the little infinity signal. Like you about to like fam, you never, you're like us. You're never coming outside again. Like, and but, it's, it's like and, and but, he just doesn't, he man, doesn't I get care. It though. But I get it. I get why he cared about that because you know. Coleslaw is literally one of the five worst things on earth, right? It's bad. It's awful, right? It's coleslaw bad. is terrible. It's, it's adored only by communists and people who like to kick puppies. It's, it's bad. Horrible. It's, it's bad. bad. I, I remember, I remember when it's raising canes back in the day, and I was with a girl. I'm not gonna say her name because she's married now. She's doing well. Okay, don't um, mess up no happy homes now, man. I'm not going to mess up no happy homes. So back, this, back in the day, I was still in Baton Rouge. We'd go to Raising Canes, and i get the Kaniac combo. Okay? i get the Kaniac combo. Would you get the Kaniac combo? I was big boy. That's the big chicken box from Raising Canes. Well, my, my thing is always no slaw, extra toast. Give me one more Texas toast for me to dip into that sauce. I don't need that slaw. She was like, no, get the slaw. I'll eat the slaw and I'll just give you my toast. And I was like, you want extra slaw? She's a serial killer. She's a serial you killer. You want, wait, and you gonna There's give no up the toast? That was it. Never looked at it the same again. Things didn't work out. You uh, were right and, in that moment. Oh, you were was, justified. Oh, you were so right with that. I'm not marrying a slaw eater. Like I'm not, I can't, I'm not, I can't do that. It's way, I'm not getting with a slaw either. That's it. But good for her. She's probably down there right now enjoying all the slaw as she can with some other slaw eating dude. They got mayonnaise residue all over their mouths and on their fingers and stuff like that. Um, but no, but Weebay, he is at least part human because when they come at him and they say, yo, all they had was slaw, look at his response as he drinks his Coke. Now you know why he was a trusted lieutenant because right. of that. Because of that. That just told me all I need to know. I was like, yep, he gets it. You yeah. know, because uh, slaw people, I tell you, no, you people no, are, you're not fit to live with the rest of us. Heathens. No. Heathens, if you are into coleslaw. You definitely don't ask a black, like, coleslaw? What? Okay. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and, and I have a feeling if they had thrown out to Weebay, hey, uh, JFK, yep, I did that one too. It's like, damn. Dog. Right. <laughs> just, anybody. Anybody. I got it. Just copping yeah. the just copping the murders uh, all up and down. Um, you know, I also thought too, because uh, one of the things that, you know, as we see these characters both move forward and backwards, uh, another really good scene was when Rawls was talking to Lester. Because Lester is now, he has gotten out of, officially gotten out of pawn shop purgatory. Officially out. 
He's broken free. He was on this detail because they thought he was useless and he turned out to be brilliant. And now he's going to become uh, a detective and work in Landsman unit, Landsman's unit. And it was so telling and so Rawls when Rawls told him, you do not play the game for yourself. You play it for us. And by us, us ain't the people. Okay. Us is Rawls and them and everybody, you know, kind of with a title. And so uh, that is kind of um, an exclamation point about how, as you, you know, broke it down so smoothly, it's between function and dysfunction. And that place is dysfunctional. And that is something that I thought perfectly told the story of their complete and utter um, dysfunction. Um, By the way, real quick, mm -hmm. that's why, just real quick, real quick aside, that's why Omar is the hero of the show. The reason why Omar is the hero of the show is because Omar is the only person in the show that plays the game for himself. Omar is the only person on his own terms. The, you're right in the yeah. wire who has that freedom that we're talking about right now. Omar does things that work for Omar. He try. Omar is exploitive a little bit. He's a killer a little bit. He's a he's he's all of those things a little bit. But the thing that makes him the most uh, aspirational, the most heroic person in the show is he's the only one that's not handcuffed to all of these systems. He's the only one that does things by himself. Omar is who The Wire wants you to be. Omar is who The Wire would like the people watching the show to be. They want you to question everything. Work with who you uh, work with who you need to work with. Not work with who you don't need to work with. Look at things on your own terms. Look at things through your own mind. Understand that there is a game that you are in the middle of, but understand that eventually it's still you who's going to have to make a decision what personal rules you play by. That is why that character right there is really the saving grace of the show um, because if people acted like Omar did, things in society would be way less intractable. I'm not talking about going out and robbing people and robbing drug dealers. I'm talking about if people took their time, if they considered the humanity of other people, if they considered what people were into and and and, and how they meant and things that they that were that were going on with them, all of these things that Omar considers, all of these things that Omar does, he considers whether or not you're in the game or out of the game before he puts his gun on you. He considers what you've done. He considers how you are. He considers all of these things, and then he makes the best decision for himself rather than being told by either a system or somebody else who it is he has to do battle with. If everybody were like that, society would be a lot more functional. Be an Omar is what I would tell people. Be an Omar. And he, as he said so eloquently before, man's got to have a code. That's the thing that's sort of impressive is that he's in a pretty grimy business, but even in that business, he has a code. There is he something, he, there's something he lives by that's important to him. And so he... You know, as you mentioned, like everybody's playing the game for somebody else, but just as important and, and what makes his character so compelling and so likable, frankly, is he's in this for something bigger than himself. Right. It's not just about him getting rich and uh and, and that sort of thing. Cause I would imagine he could have put he could have been on vacation a billion times. You know what I'm saying? Like he could have I mean, walked away. He like yeah, he likes his job now. Yeah, he, he does. like like yeah, he, he he likes his job now and like he's not a saint. But he's free. And we see, and in, in this episode about freedom, 
we see at the end of the episode that even though it looks like Omar in some way has been run out of town, he hasn't. He's free. He's going to be Omar wherever he goes. And if that's in the South Bronx robbing them, then that's what he's going to do. Are you the man with them jumbo sixes? I'm in your fucking one. Take about the or 400. Damn. <laughs> All in the game, yo. <laughs> All in the game. Of course, I definitely wasn't going to let the season finale go by without a Stringer Bell fuckboy moment because they always happen. They're just, Here comes the it's propaganda. natural. It's like breathing. It's like breathing. Uh-huh. Right. Nothing ticked me off more than toward the end of this particular episode and the camera just locks in on Springer and the look on his face, that smug asshole look that he is known to have. And part of that smugness is because despite the fact that the empire is crumbling a little bit, it's, it's not irreparable. Like they, they, he definitely got some things to work with and, um, and there is some light at the end of the, the tunnel, um, the dark tunnel that they've been in, but you just see it. He's a little happy. He's more than a little happy that Avon got to be biting this time. He's more than happy about it because you know why? That means he's in charge. Mr. Fucking uh, fake Ocean's Eleven ass Stringer Bell who thinks he has a plan for everything. Half the plans blow up in his face, but he the mastermind, Mr. Community College and his two credit hours of macroeconomics. Yes, him. He's so excited about the chance to finally prove I, Stringer Bell, am smarter than everybody else. And that look on his face, I was like, man, I need to punch him in the face. Fucking Stringer Bell. You can say all you want to say about Stringer for the entire season. But guess who didn't go to jail? Guess who is still on the street? Guess who they didn't get? It's no way. The Avon gone. D'Angelo gone. WeeBay is going to be eating dry tater salad uh, (laughs) for a long time. Guess who didn't go? That's I rest my case. Stringer still on the street, still making moves. Still, oh, oh, New York. We tell New York yeah. we back up, baby. Tell New York we back up. I'm Stringer Bell. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I can't talk. Making moves, home. going to the damn farmers market. Old fresh vegetable eating head ass. Anyway, getting his antioxidants. <laughs> I do. Um, did you have any moments that aged the best for you? Makeup sex. Age really good. Makeup sex age great. That McNulty great. body count. That McNulty Ooh. body count goes up. It's McNulty. Or well, I guess McNulty time count because the body can't Yeah, it's a time body. count. Yeah, nah, yeah. nah. It doesn't go up, but just, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. They, like, McNulty, and, McNulty and Rhonda are so jazzed up by everything that's going on. And they have sex at the headquarters right there. It's a makeup sex. A little makeup sex. That's what's no, aging. No, no, no. Say that what it was. Uh, Rhonda, what got her off was the case. They nice. had shit to do with McNulty. <laughs> but they still, it's still, but it still was a makeup situation for them. You know, it was a mm-hmm. makeup thing. So that's kind of what aged the best for me in this particular I, I think episode. she was boning McNulty and thinking about the case file. That's just me. <laughs> Probably. She might have been. She might have been. But yeah. Um, what aged the best to me is that moment where Herc and Carver are in the car and they're watching Bodie and Poop protect the pit. Because now that the Barksdale Empire has 
has stumbled to some degree um, that there are other people trying to infringe on their territory in the pit, sensing that Avon is vulnerable and it's time to kind of go there. And so uh, Poot and Bodie, they get some bats and try to go to work. See, that's why we can't win. Why not? They, they fuck, fuck up, up, they get beat. We fuck up, they, they give, give us, us pensions. pensions. Talk about aging the best. That shit is all timer because that's right. literally how it works in the real world. Or paid leave. <laughs> paid leave. Right. Desk or, duty. Or Desk paid duty. leave. Desk duty. Yeah, we know how it goes. I know. I mean, it, it's, right. um, it's weirdly, it's an unfortunate irony, but before we started taping this, I was reading a story about the cop in New York who uh, accosted, um, uh, I think it was a, a teenager or a young person in general, you know, in this pandemic for not wearing a mask and decided to add a little police brutality with it. Homeboy got seven lawsuits, seven lawsuits against them. They've had to settle seven Mm. for this type of thing still out there. So her called it or not her Carver called it. Uh, That is to me what aged the best. Anything aged the worst for you? It's always something that ages the worst. The basketball jerseys that I saw on the guy that was, uh, (laughs) you know, Avon's outfit, Avon, when Avon came out of the central booking. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was actually kind of aged poorly for then. He's kind of smooth. The hat is interesting, but you know, would like to dress like that. So maybe would, I would like to know about, I'm going to do a little bit of a deeper dive into the wardrobe of the wire and like how, and like, you know, cause I, I, it seems like maybe Wood brought his own clothes. <laughs> he, he was, he, he, he was fresh the entire it's episode. It's 2002, that, dude. You know? It is. I just don't know, you know, those hats, the, the Kangos, I didn't see him as much. I guess they were around, but maybe they were coming back. But I didn't. I didn't. I didn't see him as much. Although I do remember Chingy. Ooh, yeah. Chingy did rock the Kango on the right third video. Mm-hmm. Shout out to shout out to Kingy, Chingy. So maybe I'm wrong. But other than that, you know, the age, the worst thing is always my worst category because there's always so many things that age past. It was 18. But years here's ago. the thing, though. I, I, what's so funny about watching it in present day is that, like Wood Harris or Avon totally looks like an uncle he's dressing like an uncle like he looks like he got on his tom joiner cruise fit in like most of these episodes like he told like especially this one with the kango the yays i mean tom joiner cruise like he will be you know uh he will be stepping chicago two-stepping with somebody (laughs) by the end of the night that's kind of how he looks um other than the outfits it wasn't a lot uh, it wasn't anything that i spotted that necessarily aged uh, the worst other than, I guess, we may be an offer coleslaw because coleslaw is never cool. So that always right. ages uh, particularly poorly. Um, I thought this episode was chock full of file this away for later moments. What were some of yours? Kima standing up. Kima taking a, when, when Kima, that is a gigantic relate, uh, uh, file this away for later for a moment when Kima refuses to lie for the police department. What she refuses to do is compromise her personal beliefs and who she is for the sake of the department. That is a gigantic file this away for later moment. Kima's going to do the right thing, okay? And then there's going to be a, another huge situation where Kima's going to be the one to do the right thing, but I'm saying it's a huge file this away for later moment, one of the biggest moments uh, like of the series to come. And Brianna Barksdale, her stepping up. Thing is, man, we gotta get back on our feet. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, the longer we hold off, the harder it's gonna be for us to maintain them towers. You wanna get it back up? You lean to me and string here. 
Nah, I ain't down yet. No, you need to step back. She's right, bro. You can't take a second chance here. You know what I'm saying? Until you fix, she's gonna handle that money. I'm gonna handle that products. We here for you. In this particular episode, we see now that she is becoming uh, a little bit more sort of involved. She came on. Uh, she was kind of just his mom, D'Angelo's mom. But now we see that when downstairs, when it's three people talk, having to talk, it's her, Stringer, uh, and Avon, the new sort of holy trinity of the Barksdale organization. In Avon's absence, she's going to have to be one of the people that's going to have to become a more active participant in the drug trade there. And also we see a little bit of the fact that she is not quite okay with some of the decisions her brothers made regarding her son. About my nephew. Don't fret. Give me a chance to get with Roberto and I'll get up to D. Do what needs to be. Tom, I'm sorry for putting him out there like that. And that I'm gonna make it up to him. Well, you gonna make it up. Most of their decision to set up in a funeral home um, is definitely a file away for uh, later because the funeral home becomes a, a real centerpiece uh, for the the Barksdale operation kind of going forward. And so there you kind of get the backstory of obviously why they had to set up in the funeral home and kind of what went into that uh, right. as, you know, as we're learning, I think, especially in the last three or four episodes, you learn how vast Avon's empire you know, is that it's not just about what he has on the corners. It's also about a significant amount of leadership or a significant amount of um, of ownership that he has in in the city in terms of real estate. Uh, a, a big one. I mean, we talked about it, but I, I think it bears repeating is that I think Daniel's speech to Carver is probably that's arguably the biggest file that's away later moment in this episode because of the progression that we see of what happens um, you know, with him. Uh, and to some degree, um, when Daniels gave Prez his gun back, uh, I think that's kind of a big moment. Um, and, and that was a character that when we talk about somebody who started at point A and got someplace completely different that was unexpected, Prez's, uh, his growth in this first season was really fascinating. And so his reaction to being given his gun back he almost he doesn't necessarily look at Daniels like he doesn't deserve it, because I think that was one of the things that came out of this season is that Prez. I think at first he thought he was kind of a terrible cop. I would not disagree. But once he found his lane, he understood he had something to contribute and that he could help, but help in a different way. So he doesn't look at getting his gun back as something he doesn't deserve. He mostly looks back at it or looks seems to look at it as something that he doesn't need. He because, doesn't want it. And he doesn't want it, right? Doesn't need it or yeah, want it. Right. I think, yeah, I think he he doesn't want the gun back. He has found an area of police work that he is uh, uniquely talented in and is very uh, enriching for him. And so I think he wants that. He doesn't want the gun back. Right. You know, it, it, it's, um, and, and this is a side note to um, what we kind of just discussed, but because I brought up Lester and the scene when Rawls is telling them how things work now that he's going to be a homicide detective and working under him. I think I said this about Rawls the last episode uh, where I said he was the white Stephen from Django. Mm -hmm. But I realized it wasn't it wasn't him. It's Landsman. Landsman's the Landsman oh, is Steve. Oh, yeah. Landsman is totally Stephen from Django. 
you do not play the game for yourself, you play it for us. If you remember these few rules, you'll find me to be supportive and reasonable. Very, Very reasonable, reasonable, sir. <laughs> That's what they say about me. They say that. They do. <laughs> Why is Lansman such a hype man? Like, that shit is so... It drives me crazy. Like, whenever he's in the room and somebody's either getting chewed out or give, given some new marching orders, here come, here come Flavor Flav over here. Always got to add something to it. Talking about something. Yeah, very well, sir. It's like, yo, he's Steven. He is Steven. I remember back in the day, I was watching the Evander Holyfield fight. I can't remember who Evander Holyfield was fighting. But I remember MC Hammer was in the ring at the end of the, at the, end of the fight. And Evander Holyfield was fighting somebody. And he was getting ready. He was doing this post-fight interview. And there was a booger in his nose. And you see a hand come into the screen and get it out. Like, not Evander Holyfield's hand. This happened. You guys can find this. This happened. You see wow. somebody else's hand reach into Evander Holyfield's nose and get the book out of his nose. And my dad goes, my dad says, and the ringer, you guys might have to bleep this. My dad says, that nigga must be making $20 million a year. Gotta be. My dad, my dad, my dad said, he gotta be making $20 million a year. If he the one, he gotta be making more than Evander Holyfield if he the one that get the boogers out of Evander Holyfield's nose. That's gotta be a high paying job. And so I kind of think about that whenever I see somebody that's like all on somebody's nuts like that, like Landsman is on um on Rawls's nuts, I think, oh man, they gotta be paying Landsman well, man. It must really, it must really be good to BJ Landsman if you're gonna be on somebody's nutsack that hard as much as he's on Rawls's nutsack. <laughs> astute, astute observation for sure. Um, I did have uh, a one we love this show but moment. And that was, okay, you remember, maybe it was, maybe it was midway through the season, uh, or I should say when Lester and McNulty were first just getting to know each other and they were out for drinks, and Lester told him about how he wound up in the pawn shop. He said, hey, oh. they asked me where I didn't want to go, and that's where I wound up. And he said, they're going to they're come to ask you. Of course. When they came to ask McNulty, I, I don't understand why he told them where he didn't want to go. He didn't. Was it Lansman? You're going to learn later on. That Did McNulty, I miss that? Because I was like, wait, why the hell would he tell them that? This, not in this episode. It's early in the mm. next season. You're going to learn later on that McNulty didn't and that he thinks that it was somebody else who did tell them exactly where he didn't want to go, but it wasn't McNulty. Ah, it wasn't him. Because I was sitting there thinking like, hold up, hold up, hold up. Lester right. gave him this whole speech about and like, dude. When it, and he still ended up on the boat, which is uh, right. kind of where this um, ends up. Um, a, a small bit of trivia I have is that uh, if you remember when the bailiff announced the entrance of the judge for the sentencing hearing, um, the voice is actually David Simon. Oh, <laughs> it is okay. the creator of the series. That is actually oh. him. Yes, making a uh, look at that little little nugget, little little tidbit. Yeah. Um. All right. Finally, uh, last, certainly not least, who won this episode, Van? Oh man, it's like so hard. In this this is a th this. I said this episode compared to some of the others where we've had to make this choice. This is especially difficult in this one. I, it's hard, but I, I tell you who won. Brianna won. I, Ooh, I think now Brianna, I did not expect Bri you to say that. Brianna Barksdale, she won. I, like, I'd say she won. She won 
because she made it possible for the Barksdale organization to last even as long as it's going to last going forward. She saved the day. She didn't have very many scenes in this episode, um, but the one scene that she did have was essentially saving the Barksdale storyline. Um, well played, well acted. She comes in. You know, when I say who won the episode, with me, usage rate is very important, right? So if you can come in um, and give me just a, a like a, 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 a low usage but a high yield, I like those players, man. I like those guys, right? You like them with the high PERs. I know. Yeah. I like high PERs. I like Alex Caruso's, man. Shout out to shout out to White Lightning out here. Hopefully we can get back to the game real quick. And she was really come in, did it, big time player. Um, and just such a pivotal moment when she talks her son and uses everything that a mama uses, right? When your mama wants you to do something, your mama does just doesn't tell you how it affects you. Uh, because mamas are good at knowing how what you're doing is affecting everyone. And that's essentially what she does. It was a quintessential television mama speech. She's like, it's not just you. It's me. It's your uncle. It's your son. It's everybody that's going to be affected by that decision. He couldn't stand up to it. She kept the organization together, as black women always do. Uh, so I give it to Brianna. We save Wakanda and we save and drug cartels. That's just how exactly. it is. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, you know, it was so many possibilities here. And you know who I almost said, but then I kind of threw up a little bit in my mouth, so I couldn't. I almost said Stringer. I really did. Wow. I almost did, because even though he ain't shit, he did win in many ways in this episode. That being said, I think the person who won, and we we talked about this this scene earlier in this podcast, was Kima. Kima was the one who won Kima. this episode for me, because uh, imagine almost losing your life on a drug bus going bad, and she has every single motivation to follow Bunk's fat finger and say, yeah, it was them. And it would stand up. Nobody would question Kima, especially, who doesn't have as much dirt on her as some of the other officers uh, that she's befriended who are in her department. And, you know, it, it, it alluded to, it reminded me, and maybe this was intentional, of when Daniels told Carver Sooner or later, you're going to have to decide, is it about you or is it about this work? And see, had she decided to go ahead and finger Weebay and, and point him out, even though she didn't see him, it would have been about her. But even when she had every reason and every possible motivation to make it about her, she made it about the work. And she wasn't going to... Um, she wasn't going to put herself in a position or she wasn't going to sacrifice her integrity, which we've seen complete evidence that means a lot to her by making a dirty bus, by helping make a dirty bus, even though, yes, she would have been right, but that wasn't the point. The point was yeah. she had to kind of stand tall uh, and stick mm -hmm. to um, her own code and right. and because otherwise she would not have felt, um, you know, not just good about herself. I think in some ways maybe you could read it as a file this away later moment uh, about her intention to remain police. Yeah. And you know what? Just on, on another level, how could Bunk think that Kima of all people was gonna let was gonna let him yeah. use his finger on her? We know that that's not going to happen. So uh you didn't get that one. Okay, cool. I'm moving. <laughs> oh, uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. I was late. Uh -huh. I 
I just got it. Uh-huh. I was late. Yeah. <laughs> Twitter, I'm joking. Don't Ooh, cancel me. Uh, man, saucy. Uh, <laughs> saucy right there. I like a saucy man. Uh, <laughs> no, but like like you said before, the, the, the most important thing about the scene to me, it's a great scene, is that like like you said, she wasn't wrong. Yeah. They had the right guys, but she was it, it, it's it's about the lie, not about the the outcome. So you're right, she wouldn't have been wrong. Mm. That Kima gotta love her. Oh man, look at you with the walk off. Appreciate that. Yes. <laughs> Walk off on Kima. Well, that concludes season one, but we're not completely done with this season. Um, the next episode, we're going to do a season one recap where we will hand out our season one awards. Expect lots of basketball analogies. We will see if mm. fans, what is it? McNulty is LeBron. I think that's what you said. Or is it Lester? McNulty is LeBron, LeBron and Mc- Lester is Kawhi. Yes, and Lester is Kawhi. I think McNulty's Westbrook. I, that was that was who I was going with. By the way, that 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 comparison is getting a lot of love online. Your Westbrook McNulty comparison. I just want to say that. Ah, I appreciate it. He could definitely average a yeah. triple double. He can also shoot your ass right out the game. Either way, <laughs> right? right. It, it could go either direction. But nevertheless, uh, do look forward to that because. Uh, we'll recap some special moments. And, of course, I think you definitely want to hear uh, these awards, six-man, MVP, all these things uh, that we've been kind of thinking about as we've broken down this series. But thank you again for your support. Thanks for listening. Uh, keep listening to us and keep watching The Wire. We'll see you again next time. If I could do it over, you know what I'd do? Fucking gun.